welcome to episode 23 of the Next Gen Cast with Jeremy Hunt. So Jeremy Hunt is Chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee at the moment, a role he's had since January last year. And that's essentially a cross-party group that oversees the operations of the Department of Health and Social Care and holds the government to account. But he'll be best known to you as Secretary of State for Health, a role he had from 2012 to 2018, making him the longest-serving Secretary of State for Health in British history. Prior to that, he was the Minister for Culture, Olympics, Media and Sport, responsible for delivering the London 2012 Olympic Games. For many people listening, the name Jeremy Hunt will probably conjure up one memory only, the junior doctor strikes. But now that a bit of time has passed, we were able to talk about how it felt for him to lead through that time, what he actually regrets the most about it, and what he learnt about himself as a leader from this and from the rest of his time as health secretary. This was definitely the most candid and reflective Jeremy Hunt I've ever heard, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Jeremy Hunt, welcome to the Next Gen Cast, and thank you so much for taking time out of what I can only imagine as a pretty mental schedule to be here. I really appreciate this opportunity just to spend a bit of time with you get to hear your leadership journey and some of your thoughts on the future. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So let's start simple, really, and it's probably the GP in me that wants to ask this. But the the last year and a half or so has been incredibly tough for everyone and for you. And I wondered, you know, how are you and how are things in the Hunt household? Well, thank you for asking that question. I don't think I've ever been asked such a a kind opening question. Um, And I look at been a busy year for me but it hasn't been a tough year for me in the way it has for people on the NHS front line and obviously I'm not a doctor so I felt rather guilty being at home with my kids who are a a wonderful age they're seven nine and eleven so they're the kind of age where they can't get enough of you uh, and they're all pre that teenage rebellion and so uh, we actually have enjoyed lockdown because it's been nice for us as a family um, but with very mixed feelings, because I know so many colleagues on the NHS front line. And actually, some of the most troubling stories, some have come from general practice, although I would say that most of the, the creed occur for general practice has been more recent as we've come out of the pandemic. But during the pandemic, particularly in that first lockdown, um, it was the hospital doctors remitting people into ICU knowing pretty damn sure that they were never going to leave the hospital. And that is really tough. And that's not a normal part of doctoring. It happens sometimes, but it became very, very normal. And I think that must have been very, very tough. Thank you. So we will get to talk about COVID, but maybe just for now, we will take a little break from that and focus on on you as a person, as a leader. And I always like to start these interviews, Jeremy, with asking people about their early life, their influences, because I think it shapes who we are as people and perhaps even how we lead. So I understand that you grew up in Surrey and your mum was a nurse and I think your father was a commander in the Royal Navy. What was life like growing up at home? Well, I had a sort of very classic 
English middle-class public school education. I grew up in the home counties. And in some ways, I had the, the classic training for a leader that our country has specialised in for generations. You know, not just the sort of military side to my family, but a very traditional boarding school education. Then I went on to Oxford. And so in my case, the fascinating thing was there was a kind of expectation with all those incredible advantages that I would go on to a leadership role in my life. And I sort of coasted into politics. And I realized now looking back, I had absolutely no idea what leadership was about. And I kind of arrived and the real hard lessons of doing something like being health secretary and learning about your own mistakes and carrying on nonetheless were quite a big shock to me given the you know the very comfortable upbringing I had but I think you know through it all um, I think the one thing that I've learned is that uh, you need to be tough and to get through those difficult periods that all people in leadership positions have you've just got to have good friends and that's the thing that's uh, really sustained me I think is is having a, a close set of friends who really haven't changed for the last 20 or 30 years and uh, my my wife Lucia's become a part of that circle but we've only been married 11 years and that is perhaps an odd thing to say to people like you who I hope will become the leaders of the future but having really good friends around you is one of the most important bits of advice I would give anyone. I wondered, you said you had a privileged upbringing and you did. And you were also, you're also very values driven. Was there anything in your early life that you think shaped those values? Well, I think one of the things about that very traditional British upbringing that I had, which in many ways could have been the same in the 1880s as in the 1980s when I was growing up, is that you do have this sense of, because you've had all these advantages, it's not just enough to make money and to lead a comfortable life. Um, There needs to be some element of giving back, some element of public service. And um, in my case, I went into politics and I think that politics in a way is an incredibly easy way to give back because you um, you can end up being health secretary or cabinet minister, but it's actually also a very challenging way because in politics there are so many temptations and it's so easy to focus on short-term things like making sure you're going to get elected at the next election that can actually divert you from the things that really matter. and. I don't for a moment say that I succeeded in this, but what I always used to say to myself as health secretary is, what are people going to say about me? Not now, but after I've stopped doing the job for five years, will they look back and will they say, actually, he did some things that have stood the test of time? And if you ask yourself that question, it's amazing how many things stop mattering and you start realising it's actually a very small list of things. And I don't say this with any... Uh, disrespect to my colleagues, but, you know, it's quite hard to think of cabinet ministers who five years after they stopped doing their job, people still remember. And so I think in my world, that's a pretty good litmus test as to whether you're really making a difference for the long term. 
I never expected to hear that with no disrespect from a politician because you've really taken the ego out of it there. It's not about what you're doing in the moment that might be popular. It's what are you doing that might leave some legacy. And as you've identified, it's probably only a minority of those things that you do. And if you think about the way it works when you're a cabinet minister, you have really good civil servants. And basically, they, um, I mean, let's take health secretary, because uh, that's the field we, we both know about. And, you know, they, they assume that when it comes to medical knowledge, they're going to have a health secretary who's a dummy. I mean, I can't remember if we've ever had a health secretary who was, in fact, a doctor. Um, so they're assuming that you're a layman and that you don't know these things. And you're making these decisions at the top of, of the largest healthcare organisation in the world, 1.4 million people. So they would say, well, look, um, Secretary say there's a decision to be made about, let's say, the GP contract. And this is what NHS England want. This is what the BMA are asking for. And we recommend that you agree to A, B, C, and D. And so, and they've thought it through really carefully and A, B, C, and D will be really sensible, solid suggestions. And so in truth, most of the time you just say, yes, I'll do that. And that's the way we stop people who don't have a huge amount of knowledge making mistakes. You know, smart civil servants who do understand these issues make a recommendation. And um, the more confident and knowledgeable you get, the more you have your own views on these things. But what I used to say to myself is, look, I think anyone sensible and decent would be able to sit in this chair and accept the recommendations made by civil servants. So it's not really enough just to sit in that chair and accept those recommendations. You've got to say, well, what are the big issues? And am I changing things for the better? And in my case, and I think I got something's right and I got something's wrong. But in my case, I decided that the big issue I wanted to tackle was the safety and quality of care because the first big scandal I had to deal with was mid-staffs because uh, the public inquiry reported uh, five months into my time as health secretary. And I thought the, the NHS really understands the need to treat people quickly, although we're struggling with that now. But sometimes safety and quality get compromised. So that was what that became my focus. Um, but the interesting thing was, the more I thought about this, the more I realised it's actually very hard to change things around safety and quality, unless you change the culture of the whole system. And that's a really difficult thing to do. But in the end, no change is permanent unless it's a cultural change. And I hesitate to give that advice to Sajid Javid, because I think it's rather daunting piece of advice. Because if you say, how do you change the culture in something like the NHS, that is a Really, really tough question, but I, that is the conclusion I came to. But that's a that's a sort of twenty year plus endeavour. That's not something that can be influenced quickly. Yet you're really in that role potentially. You were the longest serving health secretary, but still a short period of time. How do you make a dent when you recognise a challenge like that? Because the really great politicians do actually leave their mark. And they do find a way to change culture. Um, let me give you two examples from both sides of the political spectrum, just to be totally balanced. But, you know, Margaret Thatcher changed the culture in this country so that we understood the importance of an enterprise economy and that we needed to have uh, successful 
companies and entrepreneurs as the basis of everything else, including money that you spend on the NHS. Tony Blair changed the culture of this country by having the first openly gay cabinet minister. And we became, in his period in office, a much more open society. So um, you can change the culture. I think, you know, to give you an example of something on the safety and quality side that I think has stood the test of time, although I'd be the first to say that not everything I did has. The new CQC inspection regime, particularly when it comes to hospitals, I think has focused people on safety and quality in a way that hasn't happened before. And I think that people do think about safety and quality a lot more than they did before. The bit that I didn't change, which I'm now really trying to focus on as chair of the Health Select Committee, is I still think in in medicine there's too much of a blame culture when things go wrong. I still think that, you know, if a baby dies because a mistake is made, there's an instinct that the answer might be to fire the doctor. And because doctors are worried about that, they then become nervous about speaking openly about what happened because they think their their future might be at stake. And given that 99 times out of 100, it will be an ordinary human mistake that any of us could have made rather than a sort of an outrageous uh, error that no doctor should have made. That does happen occasionally, but not, not very often. And, you know, our priority when tragedies happen needs to be to understand the mistakes and stop them being repeated rather than to blame an individual. So that bit of the culture, I think, is the next really big thing that I would like to try and see if we can address. Mm. That's even more important at the moment in this sort of post-pandemic era where morale feels so low on the ground. Jeremy, I want to just step back a little bit and we've got straight into your role as Health Secretary, but winding back to when you were actually appointed... I was reminded this summer that you did, in 2012, as culture minister, you had oversight of the London Olympics. And thinking back to that Olympic ceremony, I'm sure many people listening will remember the central role that the NHS had in that, that emotional punch. I mean, the health service holds such a prominent place in the hearts and minds of the British public. So when you were made Secretary of State for Health in that 2012 reshuffle, when you got that brief... How did you feel? Um, I felt really daunted. I thought this is going to be, you know, if the Olympics was a big challenge, I thought this is going to be the biggest challenge in my life. And I felt daunted. I had really no knowledge. Um, I mean, yes, I've been an NHS patient, but I was, you know, in my 40s and I'd basically been pretty healthy. So I had a very little interaction with the health service, apart from the birth of my first two children. Um, and uh, so I was, I was pretty nervous, actually. And I'd also, I inherited the brief from Andrew Lansley, who got into a lot of difficulties with his Health and Social Care Act of 2012. And um, I, I think that one of the problems with that role is that you very quickly get sucked into firefighting because of the there's a crisis of one sort or another every week in the NHS and there's such enormous public interest and it gets such extensive media coverage. So the real 
challenge is to try and be strategic and long term and not to use up all your energy. You know, think about Sajid Javid at the moment. He's, he's dealing with a crisis in general practice, a crisis in any departments, the COVID booster jabs, the jabs for 12 to 15 year olds, workforce crisis. There's a lot there and it takes incredible discipline to step back from all of that and say, yes, I'm going to do all the things I need to do in these areas, but actually what's the big long-term changes that we need to make so we don't have so many crises in the future. And that's, that's a really challenging thing to do. Mm. And that's probably the challenge of leaders in so many roles, I would imagine, of how do you stop focusing on the day-to-day and deal with the underlying issues? You talked there about, you said the phrase, making your mark. And something that I've always been curious about is you might feel that you have a short amount of time as a health secretary to make your mark. And yet, is sometimes the right answer just to leave well alone? Uh, Yes, it is. Um, But mainly because you can't fight every battle all the time. And so you need to focus your efforts And if you try to do everything, um, you'll never see things through. So I do think um, you do have to decide which areas you're going to leave well alone. When I um, arrived, I'll give you an example. I had a very, very good uh, mental health minister, Norman Lamb, who had enormous personal commitment to mental health. I knew nothing about mental health policy. And I just said, look, Norman, I'm going to follow your advice on mental health you get stuck in and I'm going to focus on these other things. So I didn't engage with mental health issues. He then stopped being a minister after 2015, which was a great shame. So I then took on the mental health brief myself and I found it totally absorbing and fascinating. But you definitely need to prioritise and decide uh, which battles you're going to fight. Yes. And when you came in, so as you said, you came in at a very interesting time just after the Lansley reforms, you were grappling with you know, a brand new system, a fragmented one, and frankly, one in which lines of accountability were blurred. So, you know, from the outside, at least, it seemed to me that you had this executive role that was answerable to Parliament, and yet you were having to do your business through multiple allied health bodies. What was that like? Um, It was challenging, but... um... I sort of worked around some of the structures in the 2012 Act by having meetings that became quite well known through the system. I always had them on a Monday. I sort of took the view that I needed to have all my strategic meetings on a Monday. And then Parliament always sits at 2.30 on a Monday. And the first time you can be called into Parliament for an urgent question is at 3.30. And even for a health secretary, that doesn't happen every week. So most of the time you were fairly in the clear on Mondays. And I would, I would, have all the senior leaders, the head of the CQC, Simon Stevens from NHS England, all the key people who I needed to have a common vision with, we would meet every single Monday. And so even though all our responsibilities were different, I think we created a sense of all being in the same team in those Monday meetings and a sense of common purpose. So I didn't ever particularly have a problem with some of the complexities of that legislation and the result of which was um, although it was there's absolutely no constitutional basis for this but you know 
Simon Stevens was particularly interested in, for example, in cancer care. So I kind of felt confident just leaving Simon to take on cancer care, uh, Norman Lamb or mental health. I was interested in safety and quality issues and turning around hospitals in difficulty. So they kind of let me get on with that. And so we were probably in some ways trampling on each other's turf a lot, but it didn't really matter because we we made sure that all the important areas were covered off. Um, there are lots of ways of doing these things, but that was that was how we approached it. You know, David Nicholson did a podcast for us on here and he he said of those notorious Monday meetings, Jeremy could get you to agree to do things that you never expected you would do. So um, you had some I, success. Yeah, well, I learned a lot from David Nicholson, actually. I mean, he um, he was a famous, I mean, he was a, known as the most famous performance manager in the NHS. You know, he was legendary for you know, uh, getting a huge system to knuckle down and deliver, say, the, the four-hour A&E target or the um, uh, elective waiting times targets. But he always said, you've got to be careful not to hit the target and miss the point. And I always felt underneath uh, that sort of severe image that he had in the system, there was a really very warm uh, and engaging person who had absolutely had the values of the patients at heart. It, it's interesting because it, you know, having those Monday meetings, it wasn't exactly the hands-off leadership style that Andrew Lansley had in mind, I don't think. That leads me on to talk about the role of the Secretary of State more generally. So we know the Health and Care Bill now intends to give greater power to the Secretary of State and that potential day-to-day interference is, of course, a huge source of concern amongst clinical leaders. So I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on that. Do you think it's the right way to be going? I hope we don't move to more day-to-day political involvement in operational decisions. I, I think that was the direction Matt Hancock was quite interested in. I don't know whether Sajid Javid is the same. I said to both of them, you know, actually operational independence for the NHS through NHS England is one of the good things that did emerge from that very unpopular 2012 Act. And it's actually in our interest because, you know, if there's an unpopular reconfiguration, the downgrading of an A&E department or a maternity unit, do you really want a sector of state to be dragged into each one of those decisions? Isn't it much easier to say, look, these decisions are being taken by doctors on the basis of what's in the best interest of patients? And they're immensely time-consuming. I felt it was much better to be at arm's length from those operational decisions. So let's see what happens in the in the passing of, of this bill. But I hope we don't go back to that, because I think in the last decade, we have seen much less ministerial involvement in day-to-day operational decisions. And I think most people have welcomed that. And it goes back to what you were saying about being strategic rather than just trying to fight fires. You might have more of an impact at an arm's length. So moving on, Jeremy, we can't not talk about the junior doctor strike when we're talking about your time as health secretary. And I understand it's an emotive topic for many people. But now that a bit of time has passed, I'm interested to hear how you feel about it with, with some distance from that time. I mean, firstly, what, what emotions does it bring out when I talk about it? Well, it was definitely the toughest period of my professional life. And, you know, I really wish it hadn't happened um I, you know i think that the changes that i wanted in the the contract were reasonable and my concerns about 
uh, care being less good for people admitted to hospital at weekends than people admitted in the week were reasonable ones and backed up with evidence. But um, to really change that, uh, we needed to change the consultant's contract. We needed more consultant presence at weekends. Um, but uh, we did make some small changes to the junior doctor's contract in that respect. And uh, they were very unhappy with those changes. And what happened was that both sides got sucked into a dispute from which there was no exit. I got sucked in because for me, this was a matter of principle. It was about patient safety at the weekends. So I felt that I could not move from that position for the, because that would be compromising on the thing that I cared about most in my whole time as health secretary. But the BMA, having got a mandate of whatever it was, 98% of people supporting strike action, also got themselves into a position where they found it very hard to compromise, even though the leaders of the strike, I think, also regretted the fact that it got into this strike. And so I got the changes I wanted in the contract in the end. But what I did was I... I lost the ability to influence the hearts and minds of a generation of junior doctors about the key things I really cared about on patient safety. And it took me a long time after that to build bridges with them. I think I have started to build those bridges. Um, and I may have even done so towards the end of my time as health secretary. But I think the other thing I learned is it's very difficult in a very large organisation to communicate with the people who are working with you. Um, in fact, the way you communicate is very often through the national media because, uh, and that's difficult because, you know, a lot of our newspapers have their own political agenda. So I did a speech to the King's Fund and the headline in the Daily Telegraph the next day was Hunt declares war on doctors. And I was quite horrified by that headline. It wasn't what I'd intended at all. But that was what they said. And of course, that's what a lot of doctors read. And so, you know, I think I have, I have mixed feelings uh, about that whole period. And with the perspective, maybe, that, that we all have now, do you think you would have done anything differently? It, it's difficult to know because um, I do think the changes that I wanted uh, were the right changes. And in fact, they are now part of the junior doctor's contract, and I'm, I'm not aware they're causing any particular difficulties. And sometimes in, in life, you have to fight battles you don't want to fight. Um, but, but I do regret the fact that that caused a, a schism in relations with a, a brilliant group of people who are the future of the NHS. So I, I've often wondered, is there a way that we could have achieved the same thing without having that enormous battle? Uh, and I'm not sure if there is, but I think that, um, you know, I, I hope I've come out of it a little bit wiser about how sometimes these disputes can get very entrenched very quickly. That one ended up lasting nearly a year, almost as long as the miners' strike of 1984. So it was a pretty extraordinary dispute you know, and as I say, it took me a long time to build bridges afterwards. And as you say, you know, it lasted a long time. It's very emotive. Both sides were entrenched in their positions. How did you feel personally? Because it, it can't have been easy. 
it was really challenging for me, but, you know, I was the health secretary and you don't go into those jobs unless you have your eyes open about the challenges that you need to face. And um, I was very clear about what I was seeking to achieve. But I, I was continually perplexed at how difficult it was to engage in any dialogue with junior doctors. And I felt that, you know, essentially they were getting their information from Facebook and they obviously weren't going to listen to anything I said on my Facebook pages. So that was the real professional challenge. How do you communicate with a large organisation like the NHS? And I do think in, in, in retrospect, I wish I had found better ways of conveying what I was trying to achieve than I did at the time. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate the the honesty with which you're looking back on that and that sort of introspection. And now I've maybe got you in an introspective mood, let's carry on because um, looking back over your time as health secretary, it felt to me at least from the outside that you were different at the end than you were at the start. And I wondered, what did you learn about yourself as a leader during that time? I don't know what I learned about myself as a leader, but you know what, what I learned about myself. I think I, I remember talking to Marianne Griffiths, who ran Western Sussex, which was one of the first hospitals to get an outstanding rating, became Dame Marianne Griffiths, just announced she's stepping down, actually. And she always had this phrase where she said, you know, when you're in a leadership position, you have to know your true north. You have to know what it is that you're really trying to achieve. And I think that that is something that is really important you have to say what what's the big thing I'm trying to change here and try and make sure that everything you do aligns with that and you're consistent in your approach on that so I I I definitely learned that as being something that's really important I also think um, it's really important to find a way of expressing yourself that is consistent with your own personality I mean what I what I love about medicine even though I'm not a doctor is that it is a people's profession and I think you know doctors like people and they like being with people and they're generally very empathetic and I actually like people as well so I despite my big battles with the junior doctors I tended to get on best with doctors in my meetings on those Mondays and so I learned about that what else did I learn about leadership I think I think the the thing you have to be careful about is not to worry too much about how you're thought about and about your own popularity. And why do I say that? Because I think that popularity is a really ephemeral thing. It's very short term. Um, and in politics, you know, people's popularity varies wildly. You can be the most popular politician in one moment and the most unpopular politician the next. And if that is your objective, it's fundamentally building a house on sand. And so I think it's much better to take a much longer term view of what is it you're trying to change for the better and make that the thing you're proud of rather than whether you're the most popular politician. I think in our political system, politicians, let me put it another way, Nish, politicians are never really going to be very popular in our system because the media is very. Uh, effective at holding people to account and it's difficult 
to think of a prime minister in our lifetimes that's left office with their head held high because the scrutiny you get on that position is so enormous. And it's the same to a lesser extent with, with cabinet ministers as well. So maybe that's the other thing I've learned. Just you take popularity out of the picture and just think what are the concrete things that it would really make you proud to have achieved. Thank you. It's very interesting to hear a politician talk about popularity as maybe not being front and centre of what well, they're maybe, about. Maybe I practice what I preach on that respect. <laughs> I, am, I suppose, though, to shield yourself from worrying about what people think, you have to have a pretty thick skin, would you say, to be in a leadership position like yours? My approach was always to say, I only care about criticism if it comes from people who know me. But most of the criticism that you get when you're a cabinet minister won't be about you personally, but it'll really be about your party label. So, uh, you know, in this country, uh, we have two big parties and it's a bit like, you know, Chelsea and Man U. You're a supporter of the red team or the blue team. And it doesn't matter what you do if you're in the blue team. Red team supporters are not going to like it. And so quite a lot of the criticism you get, and it's exactly the same for Labour politicians from Conservative supporters, but quite a lot of that will relate to the party label, the colour of the rosette on your chest, rather than you personally. So there's no point getting too troubled by that. And that was broadly my approach. But if, on the other hand, someone who knows you really well makes a criticism, then that's worth listening to, because that's someone who's, who's thinking about you. And then, uh, and what you need, I think, this is something else I really learned. You know, in, in an organisation like the NHS, people are very deferential to leaders. I mean, you will have probably seen this when you were working with Sir Bruce Keogh. There's a very strong sense of hierarchy in medicine, and it's the same in civil service and politics too. What you actually need as leaders is people who will tell you if you're about to make a terrible mistake. And that's why I always actually prefer people to call me Jeremy rather than Secretary of State. It wasn't that I was trying to be pally, but I wanted people to feel relaxed. And I found it took a really long time to get people to feel comfortable enough to tell me, you know, I think if you do this, it'll be a terrible mistake. But that's what you want. And I think good leaders have people around them who will be very frank. So, you know, that's why lots of people sort of criticise Dominic Cummings and his role in Downing Street with Boris Johnson. But actually, it is really important that someone like Boris has someone like Dominic Cummings who's incredibly frank and direct with him the whole time, just as David Cameron needed people like Steve Hilton and George Osborne who were very direct to him. And, you know, Theresa May had people like uh, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy who were very direct to her. That is quite an important part of being an effective leader, having people who tell you the, the blunt and uncomfortable truth. Hmm. And then, you know, it reminds me a bit of what Chris Whitty was quoted as saying earlier this week. Don't take criticism from someone that you would never take advice from, is what you're saying. That's it's, very good. I remember that one. That's, that's really good advice. It's about having a sort of tribe of people around you that you can trust who will tell you if you're veering off the path. And when you were talking there about not worrying about what people think of you, I was reminded of what people think of me at the moment and other people like me. GPs in the public and how difficult it is not to worry about what people are thinking of you. So we've managed to escape so far from any reference to the pandemic so I think we should address it now but at the moment primary care is in a very difficult position and morale is very low on the ground. 
what do you think about this current rhetoric that's being fueled that GPs are not offering enough face-to-face appointments that like me are only working part-time what do you think and what would you do maybe if you were Secretary of State if I can ask that? Well I'm very worried about the the rhetoric and the public debate in this respect People in the NHS are absolutely exhausted after the pandemic. They've, they've come out of it having really busted up and actually done incredibly well. I mean, the NHS managed to make sure that pretty much every COVID patient who needed it got an intensive care bed, got a ventilator. You know, we paid a big price for that because we had to switch off a lot of other treatment. And, you know, there will be sadly more cancer deaths and so on as a result of that. But to to have avoided the kind of Lombardy or New York style meltdown that we saw in hospitals there. It's a very big achievement. Um, But now, as we emerge from the pandemic, touch wood, um, people are not just exhausted, but there's this enormous backlog to deal with. And GPs feel the pressure more than hospital doctors at this stage because of the way they're paid because GPs just get a a capitation fee based on the number of patients on their books. But if every patient, instead of wanting to see their GP an average of 1.5 times a year, decides they want to see their GP two times a year, they have a lot of extra work without any extra revenue. But a hospital, if it does, you know, 25% more hip operations, will get significantly extra revenue to fund that. And so that's why... It's, it's a, there's a lot of pressure in general practice. And I, you know, I think one of the things we need to do is recognise that uh, virtual appointments are some things that work for a lot of people. If you don't want to have to take time off work, they can work really well. For lots of other people, a face-to-face appointment is the right thing. But I don't like a big battle around this because I think the risk you have is that more doctors will think, it's not worth it. I'm going to retire early. I'm going to go part time at precisely the time when we actually need more doctors to be coming back into the workforce, working full time if they're only working part time. And we need to be thinking as many ways as possible. But let me just make a point about general practice, uh, Nietzsche. I think one of the things that we, one of the longer term changes, we talked about, you know, what are the short term changes? You know, short term changes, lots of things. We need a better debate. We need to make it easier for GPs to come from, not from the poorest countries, because I think that's wrong, but from countries like Canada and Australia, where we trust their medical training. We need to make it much easier for people to come here, because many people would love to work in the NHS. But long term in general practice, I think we need to go back to GPs having their own patients. And we can't do that with the numbers we currently have. But I think if I want, I've always said, actually, if I was going to be a doctor, I would choose general practice. I like the fact that you have a relationship with patients or potentially have a relationship with patients over their whole life. And that is, to me, the magic of general practice. It's also the magic of the NHS. And unfortunately, we lost that uh, when we moved away to people being attached to practices rather than GPs. I changed the GP's contract so everyone has a name GP. But unfortunately, it turned out to be one of those things that became more of a box-ticking exercise than a substantive change and we need more GPs if we're going to do that but I think it would actually make general practice more worthwhile if you felt they were really your patients some places do manage to do this but it's become a much less common thing 
I suppose part of the problem is the working day is so hard that people like me who are entering the profession don't feel we can sustainably for a long time work more than three or four days a week. So it's then very difficult to have those relationships with your patients if you're not there enough. And yet we can't be there because we'll burn out. Yes. And that's why we we urgently need to increase the the number of GPs in the workforce, um, you know, that's a absolutely critically important. But let me put it this way, Nish. If, if you think about this big debate in the newspapers about whether we should have virtual appointments or face-to-face appointments, um, I think if we had more continuity of care, and the RCGP has written some really good papers about how actually that's clinically beneficial, not just nicer for patients. You know, a virtual, a phone call with a patient you know is much safer and often convenient for both sides and can be a lot quicker to deal with than if it's a patient that you've never met before and you don't know, when often a face-to-face appointment might be a more appropriate thing. So I think it, it, it would take the heat out of this argument about whether it should be virtual or face-to-face. You know, my, I happen to have a fantastic GP who I do know really well, and I can send a text message and say, oh, you know, my daughter's got a fever uh, should I be worrying that it's COVID? And she'll send me a you know five word reply, and that is far quicker for her than me booking an appointment and coming in for a surgery, and probably far safer as well. So I think if we can rediscover continuity of care as part of the reinvention of general practice, that would be a really positive thing. Yes, and I think most clinicians would agree that continuity is important, but when there aren't enough of us, it feels like there's then a trade-off between continuity and access and access is the thing that is peddled by the media and by some politicians as being really important and our former secretary of state also emphasized the need for access and particularly access by remote consultation and that was the mark that he wanted to leave and I think that's when clinicians get frustrated because that was talked about as the priority for his time in office. And now we have a new Secretary of State, there's a new priority. Um, that can be really frustrating. Yes, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good thing for people to want to make their mark. And I, you know, I loved uh, Matt Hancock's enthusiasm for technology, because I do think a lot of tech needs to be sorted out in the NHS. But I just think there is a in this particular case, um, we've got a crisis in general practice. We don't have enough GPs. And by the way, if we're having a sort of mayor culpa, I mean, I tried to get 5,000 more GPs by 2020. Um, I persuaded record numbers of medical students to graduate from medical school into general practice, including people like you. Um, so we managed to get that side of it right. But we didn't end up with very many more GPs because at the same time, more people retired early and went part-time. And so I do think that there was one thing I wish I'd learnt right at the start of my time. It is that although the whole, the NHS establishment is geared to ask ministers for money, they're just geared to say, you know, look, if you want something done, you know, better cancer care, no more mid-staffs, whatever it is, give us the money and we'll, we'll sort it out. Um, but actually, that's not true. You do need money. Money really matters, but you need workforce as well. And you can give the NHS, you know, three billion more a year. But if you haven't got three billion worth of additional doctors and nurses to deliver the extra care, 
then all that will happen is that you will divert doctors and nurses from something important they're doing to the new priority, but you won't improve the level of care overall. So that's that's why I think workforce has to be absolutely central to every every change that any new health secretary wants. I couldn't agree more. And I think the problem is when Secretary of State starts siding with certain newspapers, that message doesn't feel how it should on the ground and it doesn't convince us to want to stay. But Jeremy, I've taken up enough of your time and I want to be respectful of that. And in this final bit, I just wanted to change tack, if you don't mind, and shift the focus from your career to talking about what it's like being in the positions that you are and then going home at the end of the day to your family. So, as you said, you're married to Lucia. Um, is she Chinese or Japanese? Chinese. Well, there we are. <laughs> well done. Um, got that. <laughs> you're a big family man and people who've worked for you have talked about how you would come in on a Monday morning with the coffees and showing interest in their families. And so, as you said, you've got three children who are seven, nine and eleven. I mean, how do you find balancing the roles that you are doing with life at home as a dad? Well, um, you know, thank you for asking the question. And when I was in the Conservative Party leadership contest, I had to go all around the country for these hustings. And uh, slightly glamorously, the Conservative Party laid on helicopters to whisk me and Boris around. And when I realised they were doing this, I asked if I could take uh, Lucia and my oldest son, who was nine at the time, on one of these trips because he'd never been in a helicopter before. So it was a bit of a a thrill. So we were on a helicopter ride from Guildford to York and he was sitting opposite me. We couldn't talk because of the noise of the helicopter. We had, you know, headphones on. And I looked at him and I thought, I have been a cabinet minister for every minute you've been alive. And the same for both of your sisters who are younger as well. And I thought, you know, if I don't become prime minister... And if Boris doesn't want me to be foreign secretary, I'm going to take some time out and try and be a slightly better dad and a slightly better husband. And, you know, when I did that, lots of people didn't believe me. They thought, oh, you know, when politicians say they want to spend more time with their family, that's like the oldest cliche in the book. But it was it was genuine. And what I realised was that um, throughout my whole time in the cabinet, I was very careful not to do work on Sundays unless it was an emergency. So I just, I would do some constituency work on Saturdays, but Saturday nights and Sundays, I basically kept clear. Um, But I realised that actually, even though I thought I was being a good dad for that one day a week, in fact, I was preoccupied because I'd be thinking what's on the MAR programme on Sunday, what's in the Sunday papers, what's coming up in the week there'd be the odd person who would call me the WhatsApp messages. And so although I was there, what's the phrase people say, I wasn't really present because my mind was elsewhere. And it was only when I stepped back uh, that I'd start to sort of play a game of chess or last week, you know, we played Trivial Pursuit where there's a kind of junior version which my seven-year-old can play and, and really enjoy it and really be part of it. And so I think... That's one thing I would say is, you know, the real problem with politics is it can become really absorbing and you can start to grow apart from your loved ones without actually knowing it's happening. So I think it's really important that you you don't let that happen and you don't kid yourself, as I think I did, that I was being a great dad and a great husband when actually I had a 
a big priority and it was work. So um, that's why I have actually enjoyed the last couple of years rather more than I thought I would. That's so good to hear. It's a bit like what you said, uh, what will people remember when they look back in five years? What will your kids remember when they look back about their childhood? Sort of something to remember every day. And it's not often the big things. It's not the, we no, went on not. this holiday, we went, you know, we spent an entire Sunday together. It's the, we there at bedtime. Were you mm. listening to me when I was trying to tell you something? It's those mm. moments, I think, that matter the most. Yes. I've got a Absolutely. two-year-old only, but I can I relate. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank well you. Done. So, Jeremy, final couple of minutes. Can I still have you just for a moment, please? Sure. A quick fire, if that's okay. Yeah. Although you can you can answer as elaborately as you like. Yeah, sure. Okay. What's something that people often get wrong about you? Um, I think they think of the junior doctor strike, um, and they think I I was an anti doctor health secretary, but actually I think I was the most pro doctor health secretary we've ever had because I was just. I was genuinely passionate about safety and quality. And I know that the one way to a doctor's heart is to talk about the quality of care for patients. What's the last thing you binged on Netflix? Um, Do you well, have Netflix? Yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> we, we've, we had a lot. Actually, my box set binging uh, was on, for some strange reason, was on um, French box sets in the last... Yeah, and in particular, there's one called the Bureau, which is about the French MI6, which is absolutely incredible. And there's another one called Spiral, which is a really gritty French Paris police drama. And there's another one called Call My Agent, which is actually a very funny comedy. So I don't know why. And now we're moving with, dare I say it, to Korean with Squid Game. Oh, no, it's awful. It's just awful. Squid Game. <laughs> we just but... started. We've only, we've only done one. but uh, Make sure what... your kids aren't around us. So yeah. It's awful. <laughs> okay. If you had a spare hour each day, what would you do with it? I would go for a walk in, uh, in somewhere nature. Um, I, I, like, I like walking. We've got a little puppy. But every time I walk out, whether it's a park in London or um, in some beautiful countryside in my constituency, I always think, God, I'd like to do this so much more if only I could. I think there's something, I don't think anyone has ever really proved the link between being in nature and good mental health, but I definitely think it exists. Absolutely agree. Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. It is making a large gin and tonic for me and Lucia at about six o'clock on a Saturday evening that has become a bit of a ritual um, and then uh, settling down to to supper and probably a bit of Netflix if I'm totally honest. I thought you were going to say six o'clock in the morning <laughs> that would explain it. That was when I was <laughs> um, What would you do if you weren't a politician? Um, really good question uh, I um, would like to be, and I still hope to do this actually, a writer, because I really like thinking about things. And one of the things I missed in politics, I'm not talking about fiction, but non-fiction thought books. Um, I was very struck by a book by Matthew Said called Black Box Thinking, which shaped a lot of my thinking when I was health secretary. And I think that in politics, we, we, we try and change things for the better, but ultimately, the best way of changing things is to change the way people think. And you can do that with a really 
really good book. So that's something I've always thought would be a wonderful thing to do. What did you learn about yourself over lockdown? I learnt, certainly learnt that I can binge on box sets, which, uh, which I hadn't uh, learnt before. And actually, I'll tell you what I learnt about it slightly relates to my earlier point, but um, I used to, I still run a lot in the mornings, um, you know, as, as the first thing I do when I get up. But I actually slipped over and broke my elbow. Um, NHS was fantastic and broke it in three places and they put it together. But I've had some sort of painful physiotherapy to get it back being functional. But during that period, I obviously couldn't run. And I started walking. And that's what I really learned in what, I think walking is the healthiest and best form of exercise, and I, I really love that. What advice would you give a young Jeremy Hunt, fresh out of Oxford, about to embark on his career? Gosh, I'm afraid there probably are a few ambitious little sods like that. Um, <laughs> um, I, think I would never call I would, you that. <laughs> thank you, Nish. That's very kind. What would I do? I would say, um, I, I'd say a few things. I think that. It's really important right from the outset to be grounded about the things that really matter. We all need money. We all need financial security. It's a totally worthy thing to aim for. But if you're lucky enough to have a a great education and a great start in life, you can aim for more than that. And um, I think that for many people, you know, public services should be a great part of your life and can be a very rewarding part of your life. Now, working for the NHS is public service, working for a charity is public service, being elected is another type of public service. I think being elected is the type of public service that's the highest risk, actually. Things can go wrong and you can get diverted from the worthiest goals very easily in politics. So, But I would just create space for that because I think, as you know, as a doctor more than anyone, there is nothing more enriching than, than helping others. You get actually more out of it than the person you're helping gets out of it. And so make sure you create some space for that in your life. That's great advice. Of the final three, what one yeah. book would you recommend to everyone? You've already, you said black box thinking, we'll add a link yeah. to that. Any more? Um, well, I think there are, there are so many books that I could, that I could really recommend, but Anyone who's interested in politics, um, William Hague's biography of William Wilberforce is worth it. Now, William Wilberforce, you know, he was an MP. He was never a government minister. Uh, so he never held office. It took him 18 years to persuade Parliament to abolish the slave trade. And when he did, uh, most MPs owned shares in companies that profited from the slave trade. So maybe he's the only person in history that persuaded MPs to vote against their own financial interests. But I just think that's a really impressive example of someone who stuck with a cause for his whole life and really changed the world in the process. Thank you. Who's been your biggest role model as a leader? Um, well, I think I've had lots, actually. But let me tell you about one role model who I met yesterday, actually, and that's Bill Gates. He's had some bad press recently. Um, he's had a very difficult year. But I really respect the fact that he was incredibly successful as chief executive of Microsoft. And then he decided to become the world's biggest philanthropist. I mean, I think that is someone I I really admire far more than I admire the other Silicon Valley billionaires. 
I admire him for choosing a cause and sticking with it. And the final one, what would be your top three tips for new leaders listening to this? I'm just going to say one, actually, um, because I probably bored you with lots. But Oscar Wilde had this saying, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. And I think it's a really good saying. I think the people who are, end up being the most successful leaders are people who do things and champion things that are consistent with their own personality and don't go against the grain of who they are and what they believe. The leaders who come a cropper are the people who try and be someone they're not. Um, I think authenticity is, is really important, not just because that's what people want, but actually if you're trying to change someone's mind, then people really need to know that you believe that yourself. And so try and make sure that you're always trying as a leader to change things that you passionately believe in. And then I think you'll have a much better chance of carrying people with you. Thank you. That's a brilliant note to end on. And thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. I think for me, the three sort of biggest things that have hit me about you in this conversation is that you are extremely values driven. You're very consistent in those values and what you care about. And you genuinely have a deep seated passion, I think, for patients and improving the quality of care they get. And I've, I've really appreciated your honesty throughout this conversation and reflecting, admitting some of the mistakes that you've made, what's been difficult and what's helped and your encouragement to us all. So thank you very much, Jeremy Hunt. Thank you very much, Nish. And don't lose heart. I know it's a tough time for general practice, but it really is a wonderful career. And I'm sure you'll do very well, but I hope your colleagues stick with it through a difficult patch. So that was episode 23 with Jeremy Hunt and what I thought was a relatively honest conversation with him about some of the leadership lessons that he's learnt over his career. I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you so much for the feedback that comes in, and to everyone who subscribes, shares, rates, and reviews the podcast. It really means a lot to us. If you're new to the Next Gen cast, we've got a great back catalogue you can catch up on with conversations with people like Sir Bruce Keogh, Sir John Timpson, and Dr Nikki Kanani. If you want to keep in touch with the next gen, the link to our monthly bulletin is in the show notes and we'll see you next time for the next gen cast.